Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Shani Reichman, the director of IPF Atid at Israel Policy Forum. I'm joined by Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and policy advisor at Israel Policy Forum. How's it going, Neri? Hi, Shani. Good to be back with you. Good to be back with uh, all our listeners after a short break last week. Yes, it's been about two weeks since we last spoke. And we had wished for some good news, and we finally, finally got it with the successful rescue of two Israeli hostages who had been held in the Gaza Strip. This only happened one other time, as we know, months ago. But of course, this is essentially the only good news we have had, with a lot of uncertainty surrounding the future of this war on both the southern and northern fronts and some possible shakeups in U.S.-Israel relations. So let's dive right into that. Sounds good. Yeah, a lot to, lot to unpack. And uh, I was thinking also yesterday evening, there were all kinds of headlines coming out and there was a definite escalation in the north, which we'll talk about. Uh, and I thought to myself, wow, there are really no good news anywhere. I'm looking around all, all over the world, by the way, uh, and no real good news <laughs> that I can uh, discern. But we'll try to put a positive spin on things uh, from our end here. Yes. And we did have that one, of course, um, very positive, pleasant surprise with two hostages returning. But that's right. That was about it on the good news front. Right. Uh, but it was, what was it, uh, late Sunday, early Monday. And I have a little story about that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was days ago. I mean, days here are like weeks and weeks are like months. And well, I don't want to know how we'll all feel and look uh, <laughs> a year from October 7th in later this year. Oh, yeah. So it doesn't really matter when we're speaking. It always feels like we're in a pivotal turning point moment. Uh, Now, Israel has made it very clear that they want to, maybe need to, expand their military operation into Rafah uh, in the south. Um, Not just what we saw already, because as many know, the hostages were rescued through a small operation in Rafah. But we're talking about a full-scale, large operation to attack the remaining Hamas battalions. The IDF argues it would be impossible to root out Hamas without moving forward, but it's still unclear where the many Gazan civilians who are currently there would go because they have evacuated to that area. We have the United States and other countries expressing this concern, uh, despite maybe ultimately supporting the idea of the operation, um, but they need their concerns addressed. We also have worries from Egypt that this operation could lead to many Gazans flooding into their country. Uh, So what's the latest on Rafah? Why is it so important to the IDF? And what are the different options to keep Gazans relatively safe throughout it and and not risk Egypt's security as well? So that's a great setup. And all those points, uh, to my mind, are are absolutely true, Shani. So some context, uh, Rafah is Gaza's southernmost city. And it's uh, an important and critical crossing point to Egypt. Uh, the Rafah border crossing uh, obviously has been in the news uh, due to the fact that a lot of humanitarian aid um, has gone through uh, from the Egyptian side into Gaza. But more importantly, for Israeli military purposes now, uh, it's the last major population center in Gaza that Hamas controls. So if we remember, the major IDF ground operation started in late October, focused on northern Gaza and Gaza City. And then uh, IDF uh, tanks and armor and infantry swept down into the central camps. And then uh, over the past month or two has been fighting very intensively in Khan Yunus, uh, the southern city of Khan Yunus, uh, just north of Rafah. And so Israeli military planners and also Israeli leaders like Prime Minister Netanyahu have in almost every public comment, I think over the past two weeks, said, uh, we're going to Rafah. Rafah is next. And that's been very, very constant. And that's why it's kind of caused this major international uproar, uh, including in Washington, because as you rightfully said, 
Uh, there are now an estimated 1.4 million Gazans, uh, most of whom are displaced, uh, sheltering in Rafah. So if the Gaza Strip has around 2.2, 2.3 million people, that's uh, a massive proportion of the Gaza Strip's population uh, sheltering in this one city and kind of the broader outskirts of the city. And you said, right, uh, a lot of them are displaced from from the north, uh, evacuated uh, purposefully by by the IDF very early on in, in the war. And so that complicates things greatly, complicates things greatly. And we'll get to that in a second. But really, in terms of the Israeli point of view, they have to take care of Rafah for three reasons. Number one, like I said, it's the last kind of holdout for Hamas. Uh, number two, it's the location of the last really untouched Hamas battalions. So if Hamas on the eve of October 7th had 24 battalions, the IDF is taking care of over 18 of them to one degree or another. Uh, and so you have these remaining four battalions uh, situated in Rafah. And then third and finally, and I argue most importantly, Rafah is the, the lifeline for the Gaza Strip. So you have the border crossing and you also have the underground smuggling tunnels. Uh, between Egypt and Gaza, that as one person who uh, I speak to regularly, and I, I quoted in an article this week, said, Rafah and this frontier with Egypt is what turned Hamas from a nuisance into a monster that really enabled Hamas to smuggle in weapons and arms for years, both below ground and, by the way, above ground. Uh, so next to Rafah, this is something people don't know, but there was also a border crossing that was opened, I believe, around 2017, 2018, a commercial border crossing, unlike Rafah, which traditionally for pedestrians and people. But Salahuddin Gate was controlled by Hamas. Uh, and on the other side, it was the Egyptian military. And to the best of my understanding, there wasn't any uh, or very effective uh, inspection mechanism border crossing. So they were essentially able to move in anything they wanted, including weapons, uh, for years. And so through this border crossing, Hamas was able to arm itself very heavily. And we, we saw that on October 7th. We see that even now. And it also enriched itself through the control of, of the border crossing and taxing the goods coming in. And so if you really want to dismantle, destroy, eliminate Hamas as both a military force in the Gaza Strip and also a governing force in the Gaza Strip, then you have to sever that lifeline between the the terrorist group and uh, this, this frontier with Egypt. And so that's really the crux of the matter. And uh, it was left for last, Rafah was. Uh, we could argue, and I, I did argue with someone the other week about whether it was smart to leave Rafah last. They called it, you know, uh, Monday morning quarterbacking, even though in Israel they don't know that term. So he used a different term. <laughs> but yeah, it's real. It's a real military imperative. But the problem is that you have over a million people sheltering there. And so even Netanyahu, when he says we're going to Rafah, has said as well, again, due to American pressure and just kind of military reality, that they will, they will put forward a plan uh, to evacuate the civilians out of Rafah. And so when people, you see this sometimes, especially in recent days, you know, the Biden administration is against a Rafah operation. It's not exactly accurate. Uh, the U.S. is supportive still of Israeli war aims, uh, despite everything, and we'll get into it, and I'm sure, later on. But they want to see what pre the President Biden said was a credible plan to move people out of harm's way. And so those plans, to the best of my understanding, are still being formulated. Israeli officials that I've spoken to still do not want to move Gazans from Rafah back up to northern Gaza. Uh, it's still a war zone, they say, which which it is. But I think more kind of reading between the lines, 
moving the population back into northern Gaza is viewed from the Israeli side as a bargaining chip, either in a hostage deal or any kind of larger diplomatic settlement. And so they don't really want to give uh, give up that card and kind of move the population back up north. So you're left with maybe the Mouassi humanitarian zone on the coast, just northwest of Rafah, maybe some areas in central Gaza, but it's going to be a major humanitarian effort and kind of um, you need to prepare the infrastructure essentially, uh, by the way, in coordination with all the humanitarian groups working inside Gaza. So you need to set that up ahead of time to be able to accept, like I said, over a million people that you're going to have to move once again. There's been this debate, okay, uh, you know, a Rafah operation is imminent. Uh, and this was what uh, people were kind of freaking out about when they had the uh, hostage rescue raid late Sunday and early Monday. Uh, but that was never the case, that this was the, kind of the start of a major ground operation into Rafah. The Israelis will have to figure out how to get uh, the the civilians uh, out of Rafah before they move in the tanks and, and the infantry. And yes, uh, just <laughs> by way of anecdote, late Sunday, but early Monday here, uh, obviously that was a Super Bowl. So uh, traditionally, I try to wake up for the second half of the game. And so that's when I was up around, what, 3.30, 4 in the morning, my time here in Tel Aviv. And uh, we all get a message, as uh, foreign journalists do from the IDF. Uh, there's a call starting in 15 minutes. So I was very curious, you know, what, what could it be? The IDF kind of sending a message at 4 in the morning. Was it just you on the call? Who else was on this call? I think there were about seven, <laughs> 4 seven or eight people, I think, were on the call. And there are a lot of other foreign journalists on this group uh, with the IDF spokespersons unit. Uh, but everyone was asleep, as, as they should be. So I was awake trying to watch a Super Bowl. And uh, got on the call, you know, I figured maybe they caught uh, Yehis and War, or maybe something happened uh, inside Gaza or the north. But it happened to be the uh, the hostage rescue, which, like you said, was uh, was good news. And uh, yeah, so that's how I found out about it. And then uh, my editors wanted an article, so I was uh, filing an article at four four thirty in the morning with uh, half an eye on Kansas City versus San Francisco. <laughs> But yeah, it uh, it was good news. And we also have to mention, though, that there were over 60 Palestinians uh, who were killed uh, during this operation, uh, primarily due to airstrikes kind of in and around the building that the hostages were being held in. That's uh, obviously regrettable and uh, I suppose part of part of the, the price for sending in forces. You know, they were special forces, but they also needed to be protected um, and to get the hostages out safely. And we also know that the, uh, the Hamas kind of battalion or two in the area uh, awoke again uh, this happened i think at one or two in the morning and uh so yeah so um there were militants but also uh, a lot of uh, civilians as well that were killed uh, during this operation but uh, the two hostages were rescued and they seem to be doing well before we get into the hostage negotiations for the the remainder of those in captivity i don't want to throw the egyptians under the bus entirely but mm. You know, you mentioned that, of course, smuggling it from Egypt into the Gaza Strip is a lot of what strengthened Hamas. Obviously, we know the role that Israel and other countries played in strengthening Hamas by accident or whatever happened. But why had Egypt not kind of cracked down on their own border? Is that just a lot of corruption or I mean, I mean, it's clear that whenever there's an operation in Gaza, it harms Egypt and their own security, too. So. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus either. Um, and we should mention before I get to your well-taken question, Shani, that uh, another major concern for Israel uh, about a Rafah operation is um, the Egyptians making it very clear uh, that if 
Palestinians uh, sheltering in Rafah tried to uh, make a break uh, across the border and try to break through the border wall into Egypt, that would be uh, what the Egyptians consider a red line or crossing a red line in their point of view uh, could very much shake the foundations of the peace treaty uh, with Israel, although uh, an official warning or threat to sever or suspend the peace treaty has not been made, uh, despite uh, some reports to the to that effect. Uh, to the best of my information, that kind of uh, deliberate or concrete threat has not been laid on the table. But uh, the Egyptians have made clear, uh, we don't want to see Palestinians trying to flee into our territory. And so Israel, uh, because it takes its relationship with Egypt very, very seriously, uh, also has to take that into account. And yet another reason why uh, an evacuation of the population out of Rafah uh, will have to be done before a ground operation is started. And in terms of you know smuggling, it's been a long-term problem. Uh, by the way, even, even before Hamas took over in 2007, uh, even before the disengagement from the Gaza Strip by Israel in 2005, the smuggling issue has been a major concern in those days uh, via underground tunnels. When the Egyptian military uh, retook power in Egypt after uh, a short-lived Muslim Brotherhood government, they did actually do a pretty effective job around 2014, cracking down on a lot of those smuggling tunnels, uh, not all the tunnels, but but a big proportion of them. And so uh, it was thought to be maybe under control, uh, maybe not entirely eliminated. Uh, but then you had a situation, like I said, with Salahuddin Gate, which to my mind is even maybe more problematic than the tunnels themselves, uh, Salahuddin Gate was essentially a a free border crossing for Hamas to control. So the other border crossings uh, were with Egypt, right? Or rather with Israel. Uh, this one was with Egypt. On the other side, again, to the best of my understanding, it was controlled by companies closely affiliated with the Egyptian military. And it was always a concern with people who track this thing about, okay, what kind of inspections are actually going on on the Egyptian side about what was actually going into Gaza. And officially it was, you know, cement and uh, gas and anything really. I mean, really any goods that you can think of were going through. And that was, um, by the way, uh, a, a factor in the economy of Hamas, uh, Hamastan in the Gaza Strip, uh, in terms of, you know, its ability to, to survive economically. Um, but also, if there's no real effective inspection, then uh, they could be smuggling all kinds of other things. Uh, as well, and so I think now maybe the Egyptians appreciate more the the scale of the Hamas military buildup, the threat Hamas poses not just to Israel but to regional stability. Uh, clearly, after October seventh, and so the hope is that um, in this kind of post October seventh reality, the Egyptians themselves are on board in a real way and will uh, crack down on the frontier with Gaza, whether Israel goes into Rafah or not. That's the hope. Okay, well, I wish them best of luck with this. <laughs> to all of us. In terms of moving to the hostage negotiations and the state of play there, it's obviously incredible that there was a successful operation to get two hostages out earlier this week. But ultimately, only three hostages have been saved that way. And the vast majority who did come home, the many dozens who came home, had done so through diplomatic negotiations. So there are negotiations going on, I think, actually right now with regional actors, but uh, not Israel um, since Netanyahu walked out. So 
Where are we on that front? Can you share a little bit about the starting point for each side and how far apart they are and how close you think they can get? Because it seems Hamas's demands are very far away from where uh, the Israeli government's position is at this moment, even where most of the Israeli public might be. So where are they both and how do we get them a little bit closer together? So I'll preface my comments by saying the talks have not collapsed. So they're still ongoing. Now, whether there are Israeli officials sitting in Cairo right this minute or not, there are negotiations ongoing uh, all the time uh, via Egyptian, Qatari, and U.S. mediation. Uh, on the U.S. side, it's led by uh, CIA chief Bill Burns, um, who actually uh, was here last night, I believe. That's a report that just came out across the wires, as they say, uh, within the past hour. So Again, uh, Netanyahu is negotiating, but in his own way, he's trying to present a very kind of hardline stance and trying to get Hamas to budge from its proposals that it put forward after uh, what our listeners remember was uh, the summit uh, in Paris between uh, the Qataris, Egyptians, the Americans, and Israeli officials. And they put together this framework agreement in Paris, and then they flew back to Cairo and then everyone was kind of waiting for Hamas's response, which came last week. So Hamas's response came down last week. It was not unexpected in terms of a Hamas response, still very uh, hardline and ambitious on its end. And this is what Netanyahu is trying to push back on, uh, both in terms of his kind of machinations with the hostage negotiations. So he, you know, he was kind of playing tricks with um, the delegation that was sent to, to Cairo earlier this week. He sent his own kind of foreign policy advisor there and I guess to babysit uh, the Mossad chief and the Shin Bet chief, uh, Rodan Barr, uh, who were actually handling the negotiations. And, uh, and then he kind of uh, didn't let them go back there as of yesterday, uh, Wednesday. So, Obviously, people are reading into that, and as they should, and there's a big uproar here domestically, especially by the relatives of the hostages saying, you know, Netanyahu doesn't care about the hostages, Netanyahu doesn't really want to cut a deal because it would entail a very heavy price uh, for Israel and a heavy political price for Netanyahu personally. Um, and that may be true. That may be true. But I think also on the other side, Netanyahu is trying to kind of bring Hamas down from the very high tree they climbed up on. So what does that tree actually look like? Uh, Hamas's response basically divided a potential deal into three stages that each stage will last for 45 days. So six weeks for each stage. And in the first initial stage, which everyone thinks is probably the easier lift uh, to get to, Hamas wants to see uh, a six-week pause in hostilities, obviously. They want to see about 1,500 Palestinian prisoners released, out of which they want 500 like really heavy prisoners, i.e. kind of terrorists with blood on their hands, to be released. Uh, these people are serving life sentences in Israel. Uh, so that's a very difficult lift you know, from the Israeli point of view to release these heavy, heavy prisoners, uh, unlike in late November when they struck the week-long ceasefire for hostage release deal. Uh, those were women and minors being held in Israeli jails. None of them were serving life sentences for uh, horrific, horrific terror attacks. So Hamas wants uh, a major Palestinian prisoner release, and it also wants the IDF, at least in this first initial stage, to uh, withdraw its forces from the cities of Gaza, the major population centers. Now, depending on the day, you also hear Palestinian officials like uh, Ismail Haniya today uh, saying that, you know, well, we're still demanding a full end to the war as part of this deal. We still want a full IDF withdrawal as part of this deal. Uh, both of those 
from the Israeli point of view, are, are non-starters. But at least in this first initial stage, they want the IDF to withdraw from major Palestinian population centers in the Gaza Strip. Um, in return, I should add, uh, and, and this is obviously a deal, uh, for what people imagine will be about three dozen, so over 30 uh Israeli women hostages, uh, elderly hostages, and uh, hostages that are in um, pretty bad uh, medical shape. So what they call a humanitarian phase to the overall deal. Uh, so this would be the, the first stage, so stopping the war for six weeks. Um, that's a long time, but not forever. The second stage would see another six-week pause and the release of the kind of ho- the remaining Israeli hostages that are men, uh, the soldiers that are being held hostage uh, in return for an unspecified number of Palestinian prisoners. The notion is that this this price would be uh, very, very high um, because uh, Hamas is releasing soldiers. And this would uh, this stage would also entail presumably a, a full IDF withdrawal from Gaza. And there's also a third stage having to do with um hostages who who are no longer amongst the living, uh, returning the bodies and so on and so forth. I'll spare everyone the details. There were a bunch of other uh, demands that Hamas put forward that, uh, again, are, are likely non-starters and some, you know, unrelated even to, to Gaza or the war. And so Israel is trying to negotiate and to try to bring Hamas down. Uh, the question is whether Hamas would be willing. Um, now, again, they're in, you know, tough shape inside Gaza, just in terms of the IDF military campaign. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Hamas uh, will bend. Uh, as we all know, the final say likely will be with uh, Yahya Sinwar, Hamas's leader in Gaza. And uh, he's, you know, he's come this far, and he's likely surrounded himself with actual hostages. And so uh, the final the final okay will have to go through him. And so you're trying to apply enough pressure on him both actual military pressure in the tunnels under Khan Yunus or Rafah, where he may be, and also psychological pressure. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners saw uh, a video that the IDF released that they captured uh, in a tunnel under Khan Yunus of Yehe Sinwar and uh, I think two of his kids and his wife and maybe his brother uh, passing through a tunnel. It was caught on uh, Hamas internal security cameras. And this was really early on in the war, I think October 10th, and they released the video I think to essentially show the Gazan public and really the Arab world, hey, look, this guy uh, and his family, by the way, are pretty snug and secure underground in their vastly uh, uh, elaborately built tunnels, while uh, two million of their countrymen are suffering above ground in makeshift shelters and tents in the Middle Eastern winter. And so things like these uh, keep popping up, trying to apply kind of pressure uh, on Sinwar, on the Hamas leadership. And so again, negotiations are ongoing. My hope is that at least the first phase of this agreement can be reached, uh, because I think there are good reasons to at least stop the war uh, for six weeks and to get as many hostages as possible out. Uh, we have to remember, too, uh, Ramadan is starting in early March, uh, March 10th or March 11th, depending on uh, the moon cycle. So we're, you know, just a couple of weeks away from that. So if you cut a deal and it runs for six weeks, uh, Ramadan is a month, obviously, you can maybe kind of stop the war and lower tensions here and really across the region, also in the West Bank and other parts of the Middle East. Uh, throughout the Ramadan, uh, I think that will, that will be uh, all for the good, uh, including for Israel. 
Mm-hmm. Is it your sense that another few weeks of pressure and Sinwar could break, or you think we're much further away from that, um, just in terms of kind of bringing him closer to where the Israeli position is? So I don't know if Sinwar will break. It, I'll, I'll actually rephrase yeah. that. Would you say that over the last month or so, he's gotten closer or Hamas has gotten closer to this position? Like, were they further away before about a month ago or two months ago? I mean, their initial demand was for any deal to include a complete halt to the war uh, and the emptying, as they say, of all Israeli prisons of Palestinian prisoners. So that was kind of their initial starting position. The agreement that was come to in Paris and also the Hamas response doesn't technically call for the end of the war. Um, also, if you stop the war for four and a half months, presumably it'll be very difficult to to restart. Um, so that may be a calculation in Hamas's favor, but it doesn't specifically call for the end of the war uh, and doesn't, at least from the numbers in the, the first uh, stage of this potential deal, uh, call for the wholesale release of all Palestinian prisoners. Um, again, we have to see what what kind of ratio and key they they may demand at any second stage. So, have they attenuated their demands? Maybe, uh, but they also know that they're in rough shape inside the Gaza Strip. That they're only kind of ace in the hole are the hostages, and so you know they may actually want to to cut a deal. Just a question of on what terms in their point of view, and also on the flip side, and this isn't a minor point, what terms Netanyahu and really Netanyahu's government and you know far-right allies would be willing to accept. So if you know 1,500 Palestinian prisoners is too much, uh, would 1,000 find the approval? Would 500 find approval? Which Palestinian prisoners specifically? Uh, all of that needs to be negotiated still, uh, and so that really the details will, will dictate. You know, since we last spoke, uh, there was a little bit of drama between, I'm not sure we should say the U.S. and Israel or Joe Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu, but definitely one of those two, uh, with Biden saying that Israel's military response has been over the top. It's a direct quote. And he's expressing concerns, I would say not about the war itself necessarily, but how it's being conducted. Now, both of those leaders have some serious political considerations to make for their own survival and, of course, their own relationship. So what has that looked like over the past couple of weeks? Do you see a real shift? I mean, I, we've spoken about this a few other times where it seemed like there was a shift in how the U.S. Uh, was approaching the war, and then maybe it was pulled back or it didn't really affect anything on the ground. So how do you see that playing out? So we've seen these headlines, I think, really starting in November, that uh, the Biden administration was losing patience with Israel, that uh, they may call for a halt to the war within weeks, and this was uh, back last fall. Uh, it wasn't true then. Uh, I'd argue it's more true now, but we're not quite there yet. Um, it is true, to the best of my understanding. There's real exasperation bordering on anger with Netanyahu and how he's managing the war and really various facets uh, having to do with the war. Big picture the Biden folks see Netanyahu unwilling to budge on these host of issues. While on the flip side, back in America, as you know, Shani, better than anybody and many of our listeners do, Biden is paying a real political price uh, for being a stalwart friend and ally and supporter um, of Israel during this uh, very difficult time, uh, during wartime. And it's not hyperbole to say that uh, this is the policy of one man. He's the one man and one person who counts. 
But there are others in the administration who would like him to take a different tack and take a more hardline position vis-a-vis Israeli policy and really the, the war itself. Um, but Biden hasn't gotten there yet. Uh, and by the way, you know, this pressure within the administration has been there from early on as well. And Biden has kind of held the line. Sometimes I'd argue just personally held the line. So there's growing exasperation because um, they don't see movement by Netanyahu on what issues? Okay, so number one, and this has been a constant refrain, uh, Secretary Blinken, Anthony Blinken was, uh, was here last week. He said very clearly, we want to see more aid go into Gaza. More aid for Gazans. And this isn't just America saying it, it's now the UK saying it and other countries that, again, have been supportive of Israel and Israel's war aims uh, in the wake of the horrific... Uh, massacre and attacks of October 7th. And there hasn't been enough movement by Israel on that front, number one. Number two, the day after, quote unquote, right? Trying to put together a a formula for who is going to manage Gaza in a post-Hamas reality. This may entail, as the Biden administration and many others want to see, a revitalized uh, PA, Palestinian Authority, playing a major role in Gaza. Netanyahu hasn't been willing to countenance that uh, that's been constant. Uh, another thing they want to see is more flexibility, shall we say, on these ceasefire and hostage talks. Uh, we've seen American officials come out very strong and say, you know, it's a core interest of ours to see a, a ceasefire and a hostage release. Now, they frame it as a, um, shall we say, a concern uh, for retrieving and releasing the hostages. And to go back to our earlier conversation, uh, I think about 112 Israeli, and not, not just Israeli, hostages have been released since October 7th. No, I think it's 113, right? 110 of them have been released via an agreement, and three of them have been released uh, via military action. The, the two in Rafah earlier this week, and uh, one Israeli soldier, I believe, in the first days of the ground operation in late October. So 110 via agreement, three via military action. So the Biden folks want to see the hostages released, um, but they also want to tamp down tensions and at least open up the possibility of a wider agreement, uh, which we've also heard about over the past month or so, for a wider regional diplomatic gambit. So the idea in Biden circles is you tie everything together. And I think we've talked about this before, but it's worth reemphasizing because it does speak to the uh, to the growing exasperation uh, by Washington with with Jerusalem. So the idea being that you cut a ceasefire and hostage release in Gaza, that will in turn allow, say, movement on Saudi-Israel normalization, because the Saudis also want to see an end to the war uh, before they take steps to normalize relations with, uh, with Israel. It would see as well uh, some commitment by Israel to steps towards Uh, a two-state solution, a Palestinian state. We've also seen that in the news in recent days uh, because that's also a a Saudi request and not just Saudi request, but across uh, the Arab world, tied in with real reform in the Palestinian Authority, tied in maybe on the back end with some kind of diplomatic agreement with the North, uh, Israel and Lebanon. So all of this is all tied together. (laughs) Um, Again, ambitious, but but I suppose there is a logic to it, but it really hinges on kind of at least securing some kind of ceasefire initially in Gaza, right? 
So it hinges on that. And all of these things, I'd argue, uh, are being, have been stuck, uh, at the very top of the Israeli government for one primary reason. And that's, uh, Netanyahu's own domestic political considerations. So he believes himself to be beholden to his right wing allies, uh, people like Itamar Ben-Gvir, Betzalel Smotrich, and this is why he doesn't want to break with them at all. And so things like increased humanitarian aid, uh, Ben-Gvir and Smotrich are against. Things like a PA role in Gaza, Ben-Gvir and Smotrich are against. Palestinian state, don't even have to, <laughs> don't even have to talk about it. They're, uh, uh, they've been against it even before uh, they were senior ministers in the Netanyahu government, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, the far right doesn't seem very impressed by the carrot of Saudi normalization. It doesn't seem impressed by uh, implorations and now sanctions against uh, extremist settlers in the West Bank by the Biden administration. Also doesn't seem impressed by the prospect of bringing hostages home. You said it, but that's also they they and a lot of their base and demographic have argued that in the context of any agreement with Hamas, that they don't want to see the wholesale release of, you know, say, heavy-duty terrorists uh, imprisoned in Israeli jails, that they would rather uh, not release the hostages uh, if it entailed or if it required paying such a price in terms of um, releasing Palestinian uh, prisoners. Now, again, that's their position. For some of them, that's been their longstanding position, but it's very easy to say that when you're not related to those Israeli citizens being held captive in tunnels under the Gaza Strip for over four months. It's also, shall we say, this is kind of said between the lines, but it's also part of the conversation, at least in Israel. A lot of the hostages, because they were living in the Gaza envelope, were from Kibbutzim and Moshavim. Uh, these weren't voters for Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betzalel Smotrich, far from it. And so I think, you know, they won't say it publicly. I think one one MK from Smotrich's party may have said it publicly very, very early on and then kind of walked it back. But they say, well, you know, this is this is the price uh, we have to pay as a country. And, and there was a, a minor uproar, I think, last week when Channel 14, this is the... Uh, the you know the Netanyahu kind of mouthpiece station uh, television station here. One of the commentators on their panel show one night said, "Well, uh, that's the price we have to pay in blood for defeating Hamas. That the hostages will have to will have to pay for it." And it's uh, again very easy to say uh, when it's not your family members or loved ones uh, being held captive, and uh, rightfully that that caused a major uproar. And so again, it's a major dividing line in the conversation here in Israel, what price would you be willing to pay uh, to secure the release of the hostages? Right now, Hamas has asked for X. Uh, Netanyahu is trying to bring that price down, um, again, as as he should. But uh, at a certain point, Israel, and really the Israeli government, will have to decide, okay, are we actually willing to pay any kind of price uh, to secure some kind of agreement to release the hostages? Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that there are some sort of competing movements within Israel, right? Competing protests, one with maybe the hostage families, one without them, um, kind of demanding different prices. Some would argue any deal right now, which if, if it's your family, fair enough, with others, of course, on the other end of that spectrum. Um, probably with most Israelis being in the middle, which is to say very conflicted about the price, but wanting to, of course, bring the hostages back. Very, very conflicted. And because um, it's a very difficult question to answer, right? It's it's a major dividing line. Uh, polling 
we should say, isn't necessarily in the favor of the hostage families who are demanding, um, you know, that the Israel pay any price to secure the release of their loved ones. So in certain polling that I've seen, uh, you know, the majority of Israelis are, are against that. Uh, but okay, not at any price, but what kind of price are you willing to pay? And it will be, it will be, you know, a painful price for Israel, but, uh, Israel arguably should be strong enough to, uh, to weather, uh, any, you know, major release of, of heavy duty Palestinian prisoners. Uh, again, depending, I suppose, which ones and how many. And these are the details that, that will make or break any deal. But, uh, at this point, we're, we're not quite there yet in terms of an actual agreement, but this is what is being negotiated. And this is what the U.S. especially is trying to, to broker at this moment. Uh, again, to secure, uh, the release and essentially the lives of the hostages, but also with an eye to this wider and more ambitious diplomatic gambit that, you know, rests on securing at least some kind of ceasefire, uh, in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Now we have to look to the north. Um, where there was a deadly rocket attack from Hezbollah that killed an Israeli soldier. And then Israel ramped up uh, attacks in response on terror sites in Lebanon, uh, killing a Hezbollah commander and his deputy, plus a few others. If a full-scale war was a 10 on a 1 to 10 scale, where are we now? Um, It seems like neither country or um, Hezbollah and Israel, I don't know if I would call Hezbollah a country, uh, wants to hit a 10. But sometimes that just happens kind of by accident with this sort of escalation that we saw this week. Um, so so where do you see us on the scale? Well, I'd argue Hezbollah is a terror army uh, and also obviously a, a political and religious movement, but a terror army with a country, uh, and that country is Lebanon. So uh, if in the past you could say that uh, Lebanon was the base or you know, it was hosting uh, a terror group like Hezbollah. Uh, now it's quite the opposite. Hezbollah essentially controls Lebanon. And on your scale, Shani, I mean, I don't know where I was last time, but wherever I was last time, I'm one or two steps above that in terms of the potential for you know a real escalation, just based on what's happened here over the past two or three days. So like we said, we're recording this on Thursday. Mary, don't avoid. Give it a number. Uh, a number is impossible. Because, okay. because you know, we're closer to a full-on escalation than we were previously, but maybe not as close as I deem it. And again, I think last time we said, you know, it depends on the day. So uh, if two days ago I was uh, more optimistic about some kind of diplomatic solution for uh, the conflict in the North, uh, today I'm a bit more, a bit more down, a bit more skeptical. Uh, I'm calling it an eight. Keep going. <laughs> no, because because an eight, uh, I think I think there's still room to. Well, I think there's still room for both sides to escalate, short of full out conflict, which I think is is good news and, and should be good news. I don't think we're at an eight. I don't want to freak anybody out. Okay, uh, that's good. But I don't think we're at a one. Uh, and there may have been a day, you know, a number, you know, last week where it was fairly quiet in the north and. You know, diplomacy, you were hearing kind of more positive notes from this side or that side. And, you know, maybe it wasn't a one, but it was closer to a one. So five. <laughs> there you got me. Maybe we're at a five, but I think the more, the more important thing is what we've seen on the ground, uh, over the past two or three days. You mentioned the, the rocket strike on Sfat that hit inside IDF Northern Command, 
which is headquartered in Tzfat. Uh, so Tzfat is a city in northern Israel in the Galilee, about 20 kilometers from the Lebanese frontier. It's It was a weird incident, I mean, a tragic incident, because uh, that one uh, young female soldier was killed. Eight other soldiers were injured, uh, one seriously. But it was weird in the sense that uh, the IDF still maintains that these were kind of rockets that were hit, uh, that were that were fired, and not precision missiles. And the difference between a rocket and a missile is that a rocket is unguided, uh, oftentimes called artillery rockets, whereas missiles, and you have kind of precision-guided missiles in Hezbollah's arsenal, they hit this base with a rocket, which I, I guess Hezbollah has very good marksmen, but uh, they hit right where they wanted to because they were aiming for, for Northern Command, and they hit it, and with tragic results. And so we saw a major uh, IDF uh, wave of airstrikes last night, Wednesday night, and also this morning. Uh, at least 11 Lebanese were killed uh, in southern Lebanon, including civilians. Uh, you also had, like you said, a number of senior Hezbollah uh, operatives killed, uh, I think, both yesterday and this morning. Uh, and even before that, you saw a certain targeted uh, assassinations or attempted or targeted assassinations by Israel of, of senior Hamas Hezbollah guys. So um, there has been an uptick, an uptick in the north by both sides. And so, you know, you have this kind of tit for tat, what you call uh, in the Middle East, a, a cycle, an escalation cycle. And so this escalation cycle has uh, has grown more, more intense, you know, not to make light of it, but uh, I'm, you know, given the the serious IDF retaliation last night. I'm still waiting for a major Hezbollah reaction uh, today, and I think one one will be coming. Uh, there was some kind of rocket and missile attacks earlier today, uh, but I expect something more significant, just given the death count on the Lebanese side. And the bigger problem is that uh, Hezbollah's uh, chief Hassan Nasrallah gave the speech. I think it was yesterday. He didn't seem like he was willing to compromise. He had this line where he said, you know, it'd be easier to move the Litani River. Litani River is this river in southern Lebanon. It'd be easier to move the Litani River to the border with Israel than to move Hezbollah's forces back up to the Litani River. Uh, it's a nice turn of phrase by Nasrallah. Uh, but he's also climbed up a very high tree, not only tying his own group's fate and the fate of Lebanon to the Gaza War, saying he's going to continue firing on Israel so long as the Gaza war continues. The Gaza war is likely not going to end anytime soon, uh, despite the hostage and ceasefire talks. And so the diplomacy is meant to find some kind of formula to move Hezbollah's forces off the border in a real way to kind of solidify some kind of peacekeeping or Lebanese army force in, in southern Lebanon to find some maybe international guarantees to sweeten the deal for Hezbollah with uh, major, major economic aid for Lebanon, and maybe to start some kind of negotiations between Lebanon and Israel over these 13 points on their shared border that uh, Lebanon at least thinks are in contention. So that would be some kind of diplomatic formula, but it doesn't seem like Nasrallah is at least preparing his own public for for anything like that. And so that in and of itself is very concerning, as is on the Israeli side, we have to say, both Senior Israeli officials like Netanyahu, but also Defense Minister Gallant have, uh, and the Chief of Staff Herzl Levy have, uh, you know, come out very strongly and said, you know, we're we're going to take any action we think is necessary, including a military operation, to secure the north, and more importantly, to secure eighty thousand displaced Israelis from their border communities. That's a real, real pressure point for Israel and the Israeli government, 
as it should be. So, yeah, all told, I don't think we're uh, we're near a conclusion uh, for any kind of di- diplomatic move in the north. Uh, but uh, hopefully, it doesn't kind of boil over before diplomacy has gotten has been given a real a real chance to work. And having said that. To go back to your initial question, yeah, I think if both sides had to choose, they would rather avoid a full-out conflict. Uh, from the Israeli point of view, that's that's a stated policy. They're going to give diplomacy a chance. But as diplomacy is being attempted, the IDF at least is not backing down from kind of ratcheting up pressure on Hezbollah, uh, trying to degrade its capabilities and degrade its personnel and commanders. And uh, Hezbollah, for its part, has not relented on tying its fate to Hamas in Gaza and it's kept firing on northern Israel and also doesn't seem willing to uh to at least by choice move its forces back and uh and try to kind of de-escalate on its end and and you know it keeps firing as well. All right, Nari, you owe me and our listeners some uh some optimistic hopeful stories from this week. Otherwise we're going to have to count not yet at war with Hezbollah as your optimistic note. That is an optimistic note, I have to say. That is an optimistic note. I mean, the positive news, like I said at the top, it's, you know, like last night, uh, it it all seemed very, very gloomy. But the IDF, again, despite the the very, very heavy loss of life and the difficult, I mean, difficult is not, it's probably not the right adjective, but uh, the very grim reality for innocent civilians in Gaza, we have to acknowledge that, the very difficult situation inside the Gaza Strip. It does seem like the IDF, campaign is moving ahead successfully and getting the job done. And so I think that's that's important given October 7th and the need to eliminate Hamas and or at least the threat of Hamas from the Gaza Strip. I think the fact that diplomacy both in the north, such as it is, but definitely in Cairo with regard to ceasefire talks are still ongoing, uh, which wasn't the case, you know, at least in terms of Israel and Hamas. A few weeks ago, uh, I think that's an important point and, and could lead to a breakthrough and hopefully, hopefully does. Uh, and I think the reality, I think in the southern Israeli border communities, in contrast to northern Israel, I think life there should hopefully, uh, not get back to normal. But in large parts of southern Israel, um, we do see reports now in a real way that people are planning to return that rocket fire from Gaza has come down to almost zero. I think that's that's a positive, and so I think that will uh, facilitate the return of um, southern Israelis to their communities and, and to get back to uh, to their regular lives uh, down there. But again, you know, not too much good news. <laughs> I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There aren't there isn't that much good news, you know, in terms of the overall situation. Like I said, Ramadan is looming. Uh, the West Bank during Ramadan could could be a major issue, which uh, hopefully we'll get to talk about in future episodes of Israel Policy Pod and the politics in Israel. Uh, this government is not fulfilling its responsibilities to govern Israel in a responsible way. That could be a whole separate episode of Israel Policy Pod, but on a slew of issues, you know, taking care of reservists and their businesses and their families. Uh, taking care of the northern communities that have been evacuated, you know, showing some kind of flexibility towards your biggest and most important ally, the United States, uh, showing some kind of flexibility vis-a-vis the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Uh, the fact that the West Bank hasn't blown up 
quote unquote, in a real way, is not just due to this major IDF operation that's been ongoing there for four months. It's also due to the actions of the Palestinian Authority, um, and so on and so forth. You know, the the Israeli government, uh, whether by omission or commission, uh, is trying to <laughs> make make things worse, and hopefully, hopefully Netanyahu gets a grip on his on his government soon. But uh, I'm not holding my breath. Okay, best of luck to all of our leaders across the region. And across the world. Well, not all of them. <laughs> well, not, yeah, not all the, the, the regional leaders. <laughs> not the ones we hate. <laughs> yeah, some are definitely better than others. Uh, but best of luck also to leaders closer to where you are right now, Shani, because uh, it's a difficult mm-hmm. time. I know uh, in the Biden administration, hopefully some good news comes out of my end sometime soon. Hopefully soon. Here's hoping. See you next time, Larry. Bye, Shani. Thanks. Thanks. 